The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. It's always great being here with you, talking to some of the best listeners on talk radio. Listen, you know I love hearing from you, so make sure you join in in the conversation. That's 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-1-L-E, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. And all of the other Jawandos you will ever find on Twitter are related. So if you touch one of them, they're going to tell you about this show anyway because they're my family. Um, So it's great to be here with you. You know, I will tell you, uh, the second half of the show, we're going to talk about what's happening in Louisiana and Minnesota um, and some of the tragedy that I think many in the African-American community are are deeply feeling today. Um, I could not start the show without acknowledging that because it has been um, a really difficult 24 hours. I mean, I literally went to sleep grieving one incident and woke up to another. Um, And that just does a powerful mind trick. So we're going to have a conversation with some really great experts. Um, Pete um, Havilon Edouard, who is with the Million Hoodies Movement. Um, We're going to have our own expert here at the Center for American Progress, Todd Cox, who's going to join us. He's our senior fellow and director of criminal justice. And we may have a few other guests joining us um, over the phone. So excited to keep that conversation. But I first want to turn to something that I think many of our listeners know that I care about, um, which is living and breathing. Um, And thus far, I have become a new acolyte of the environmental justice, um, the environmental movement, because I think far too often it's an issue that doesn't get talked about quite enough. Um, We don't understand how there is a conservative um, strategic effort underfoot um, in many of our states and capitals to literally affect the air that you're breathing and people trying to stop that. And so I have some really great smart people in the room with me. Um, None other than a friend of the show, Benton Strong, our managing director here of communications at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hey, Benton. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us, as always. Um, none other than Tim Ballo, who is the staff uh, staff attorney at Earth Justice. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And last but certainly not least, Jillian Murphy, who's the Associate Director of Communications here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jillian. And more importantly, she lives in Montgomery County. So you guys know how I feel about that. All right. So, guys, let's start a conversation. Um, You know, recently the United States has taken a a number of really big steps to address climate change. Um, I think that this president, um, our founder here at the Center for American Progress, John Podesta, also often talks about the major moves 
that President Obama and this administration has taken um, to preserve and to protect the environment, whether we're talking about public lands or a really aggressive EPA. But I don't think many people know about it which is not good, but why don't you tell us what's going on? Yeah, that's right, Michelle. So the president actually has taken probably the most steps out of any, um, save Richard Nixon, frankly, for establishing the EPA um, 40 years ago. Uh, President Obama actually just last year took the first ever step to limit the dangerous pollution that drives climate change um, coming from power plants. Uh, That's called the Clean Power Plan. And that um, will cut carbon pollution levels by 32% um, by the year 2030. And that's a really huge deal. Carbon pollution um, drives climate change, which warms our atmosphere, drives more extreme weather, um, and leads to tons of unhealthy air days in cities and towns across our country, um, which means our kids can't go outside. Um, it's harder for them to breathe. Um, and like you said, I like living and breathing, too. Um, so I'm grateful for um, President Obama taking action to address this really critical issue. And, Tim, some of our listeners may not be familiar with Earth Justice. I mean, it's a really cool name. Uh, but, you know, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the organization you're a part of? Um, and also, you know, Julian just mentioned the Clean Power Plan. Um, but there's a SCOTUS Supreme Court of the United States connection here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So, yes, I work for Earth Justice. We're a nonprofit law firm. Um, We are actually began life as Sierra Club's lawyers, and they spun us off into a separate organization uh, some years later. So um, the the issue of the Clean Power Plan, though, really begins, I think, back in 2007 when the Supreme Court decided in Massachusetts versus EPA that – Greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, fit the Clean Air Act's definition of an air pollutant. Because they are air pollutants under the Clean Air Act, EPA then had to make a determination whether they may be reasonably anticipated to endanger uh, human health and welfare. And in 2009, in fact, EPA did determine, based on all the available science, that greenhouse gases may be reasonably anticipated to endanger human health and welfare of current and future generations. Um, That determination then sets in motion a requirement for EPA to uh, adopt standards for greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And it did that. It adopted standards for new power plants. Now, power plants, if our listeners aren't, what is that? Is that like the, you know, big smokestacks that we see? What is that? Pretty much. uh, A large facility that burns fossil fuels, whether coal or natural gas, to uh, generate electricity from that. So there's a lot of uh, carbon dioxide emissions from those facilities. They account for roughly almost a third of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S. And they are by far the largest stationary source. Uh, Cars and trucks account for a significant portion. But in terms of a building that emits uh, greenhouse gas emissions, power plants are by far the largest. So you are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando in studio with Jillian Murphy, Tim Ballow, and Benton Strong. So Benton, you know, Tim started to give us a little bit of like the kind of legal background, but the reality is at the same time this administration has kind of moved forward, we've seen a conservative kind of political effort every step of the process to basically stop any of that progress. Well, you know, welcome to the Barack Obama presidency, right? But this is a president who ran on 
uh, climate change in his first term and then ran on it again in his second term. And I think if, if you want to, if you want the sort of seminal moment in when we decided we were this, we were definitely going to go forward on action and the EPA was going to aggressively do it. It was in the president's State of the Union or I can't remember his State of the Union um, in 2013 when he came out and said, uh, if if Congress will not act on climate, I will. And since then, he, that's exactly what he has been doing. And so uh, it, it, in this instance, it is uh, more of a longer term legal battle uh, than maybe you've seen on other issues like the Affordable Care Act and mm-hmm. immigration policy. It, it, environmental policy has always made its way through the courts. And that's why you mentioned SCOTUS, but the lower courts and um, particularly the D.C. Circuit, the courts have been a very important aspect of getting policy moved. I think there was actually a suit filed by two organizations today um, to, to move some policies forward. Um, uh, but in this instance, you have uh, a, a party that not only has tried to block it on some, whether you want to call them legitimate or not, like business-focused grounds, you also have a massive chunk of people who are in Congress today who literally will refuse to admit that climate change is real. Uh, right? And, and and I believe it was a president and a couple other people who have said that the Republican Party of the United States is the only political party in the world who actually holds that position. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we're talking it's about crazy. we're talking about blatantly putting the blinders over your eyes on something that impacts uh, not just sort of communities around the world, communities as a whole, but per your conversation that you're about to have in the second half of this, mm-hmm. the environmental justice and ju- typically just the justice conversation generally disproportionately impacts these communities. These communities that are largely already being hit by economic struggles, by police violence, by different elements of healthcare challenges, you name it. These communities are most adversely affected by some of these impacts, and they're getting it's getting worse and worse and worse on them. And they also tend to be places where we're doing the least to stop it from happening. So if you are listening, and I hope you are, we're in studio with Tim Ballow, Jillian Murphy, Benton Strong. We'll be back after the break, talk a little bit more about politics, the clean power plan, how do we protect it, and where we go from here. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, and I am Michelle Jawanda. We'll be back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host, Michelle Jawando, on The Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you every Thursday from 3 to 4. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. And I'm still in studio with Jillian Murphy from the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Jillian, J-I-L-L-I-A-N-H Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y. Um, Tim Ballow, staff attorney at Earth Justice. You can find him on Earth Justice, at Earth Justice. He keeps it simple. Like I like that. I respect <laughs> it, Tim. And then none other than our um, friend of the show, Benton Strong, managing director here at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. He tweets at Benton, B-E-N-T, 
T-O-N, strong, S-T-R-O-N-G. So, Tim, um, during the break, we talked a little bit about um, the Clean Power Plan and some of the benefits that I think a lot of people don't even quite understand affect them directly. Um, And I'd love for you to share with our listeners, because I think sometimes the issue on protecting our environment feels so big that people don't know how they fit into it. Sure. Um, One of the ways that it will impact consumers is by reducing electricity costs over the long term. Um, EPA projects $150 plus billion in reduced uh, utility costs over the uh, 10-year period of its implementation. Um, But, you know, frankly, another pretty significant way that the Clean Power Plan will affect uh, families across the country is by not having power plant emissions kill them. Um, and, and I, That's I, a good thing. <laughs> Basic. <laughs> EPA projects about 90,000 fewer childhood asthma attacks and uh-huh. visits to the emergency room, about 3,600 uh, avoided premature deaths from power plant emissions. It's true that the power plant, uh, the clean power plant regulates carbon dioxide, but there are a whole slew of benefits that occur in terms of reducing other pollutants that more <coughs> directly impact human health. Uh, when you reduce power plant emissions of carbon dioxide, you reduce all these other pollutants as well. Yeah, one of the key things that EPA found when they proposed the rule is that for every dollar power companies invest in complying with these pollution reductions, Americans will see $7 back in health benefits, which mm. is a crazy return on investment when you're thinking about our kids' futures. But now, uh, Jillian, we here at CAP recently put out a report um, suing and spewing the massive pollution behind the fight to overturn the Clean Power Plan. And it basically highlighted that the top electric power producers affiliated with the lawsuit also polluted as much carbon dioxide as 129 countries combined. Yeah, if they were their own uh, economy, these power producers were their own economy, they would actually be the sixth largest in the world in terms of carbon pollution that they're putting out every year. Um, and so these power companies are bringing the lawsuit against the EPA because they want to get out of having to clean up their act. Um, and the attorneys general who are supporting them, uh, like Patrick Morrissey from West Virginia, Cynthia Kaufman in Colorado, Pam Bondi in Florida, um, they're just protecting their polluter allies. We actually did a study that looked at uh, climate deniers uh, and those who take uh, campaign contributions from the dirty energy industry like coal, like oil and gas, um, and found that governors and attorneys general who are supporting efforts to block the clean power plan in the courts have taken more than $23.8 million in campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, we here on the Leslie Marshall Show, we often talk about about campaign finance, but we situate all of this in just plain and simple politics. And, you know, Benton, I will say that I think a lot of people recognize that there has been a concerted effort to stop any movement that President Obama has tried. I mean, Mitch McConnell at the beginning of uh, the president's, um, uh, after he was inaugurated, said they wanted to make him a one-term president. So it's like this is something that we see all the time, but it feels different in this space. It's like 
everybody gets behind um, one or two characters. They get in a closed door and they're like, oh, this lawsuit's coming out. You go and take that one. I got this state. We're going to hold it down in that state. Yeah, but let's talk about what's really happening here, right? So so it, what's, it, what's most interesting about Mitch McConnell being the, the, the Senate Majority Leader is this is an issue where he can actually claim some sort of policy conversation he can have about his home state. But here's the problem. The coal industry in his home state is dying. And and the the result of that is that is is you are seeing community after community after after community in the state of Kentucky struggling because the the coal industry because of market forces is struggling and the refusal to admit that that is happening and that it's time for them to transition to the next step next stage of energy production in the United States means that Mitch McConnell is actively leaving his state hanging it out to dry as far as jobs are concerned but to get to your you know original point here it, it, in this in this uh, industry this is the wealthiest industry in history of the world mm. Right, we're talking the, 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 the oil industry. The we're oil talking industry. about and 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 the, the the impact that the that the energy industry has in the United States, like the overall conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. So, but if you just look at oil b- by itself, without even getting into coal and gas and the things that are re- really behind powering, but the ones that fund things like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the, the organizations that are really putting a lot behind this, these suits. Uh, we still subsidize this industry to the tune of $4 billion a year. Which like, is insane. Like, if you think that these kind of campaign contributions aren't working, you need only look at the fact that we're, that we're that after the BP oil spill in 2010, nobody felt compelled to stop defending the fact that we're subsidizing the oil industry. And and if, if you think that's the only place where these subsidies are happening, you just need to look at the point that was made earlier about the fact that that we're allowing these companies to pollute our environment and not charging them the tab for cleaning it up, right? And so when you look at when you look at how we want to go forward on this, the blockade that's happened in Congress on this issue, where you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars spent lobbying Congress and spent ensuring that they have a majority in Congress, where it's still okay to deny that climate change is real, the Republican candidate for president, crazy as he is, still thinks climate change is a hoax. Right in 2016. <laughs> so if if you think like if if you think that 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 we can solve this just by going in and getting on the ground and getting our elbows dirty, the issue that you work on, Michelle, of campaign finance, is is central to movement on That's environmental crazy. priorities. That's awesome. And Tim, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, well, you know it, what's interesting to me is the the great fear. I think the greatest fear from the fossil fuel interests is that the clean power plan will actually work. And that's why I think they sued to try to stop EPA from even finalizing what they proposed to do in the Clean Power Plan. I've never seen uh, so many petitions for review filed challenging in court the idea, the suggestion, a proposal to do something before, mm-hmm. you know, not a regulation, not not anything final, just here's what we might do. They tried to sue to stop EPA from, from doing that. So you're listening Tim Shallow, Earth Justice, Jillian Murphy, Benton Strong. You're awesome. We have to keep the conversation going because I like breathing and living. Thanks for coming on the show, and we'll be right back after the break.
Marshall Show. This is your host, Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you. Um, love to hear from you. If you go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE, that's 888-653-7543. You can follow the conversation online or follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, last name Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. Um, I'm happy and, you know, I teed up this segment um, in the earlier hour. Uh but we here, you know, many of you know, I'm here in Washington, D.C., and my day job is I'm vice president of legal progress here at the Center for American Progress. But I tell people I've spent a, most of my professional career as one of or um, the only typical African-American in predominantly white spaces. And so when I start um, the day yesterday, um, with Alton Sterling. And it's funny because now every time I see a name on Twitter, I kind of tense up because I expect um, that it will be another shooting. Um, and unfortunately, most of the time I'm right, um, unless it's like Kardashian. And then I just roll my eyes because I just can't take it. Um, but yesterday, I remember going to bed with kind of a sense of sadness and dread um, because we were Dealing with the death, and for many of our listeners who may not be familiar, Alton Sterling is um, a 37-year-old father of five. Uh, grainy videos been released, unarmed, um, two police um, in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, killed on point-blank um, range. And I went to sleep with dealing with that and woke up with another video of another person. Another black man who looked like my father, my brother, um, my cousins, my nephew, um, and recognized, like, my God, where are we? Um, and I recognized I wasn't the only person. And so I had to bring in some friends and colleagues to process this, to talk about a way forward, and in some ways to just vent. Here at CAP, we literally just had an hour venting session for people to just explain how they felt and what they were going through. And really excited about our next two guests joining me, Pete Havilon Edouard. Um, he tweets at the N-O-T-O-R-I-U-S-P-H-E, the Notorious P-H-E. He is Million Hoodies Co-Policy Chair, an international organization um, that serves the membership of the network in organizing our collective vision for justice, dignity, and liberation. Pete, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you so much for having me. And in studio, a friend of the show and one of my friends here at CAP, uh, none other than Todd Cox. He is a senior fellow and director of our criminal justice and policy team. Todd, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you very much for having me, Michelle. So uh, a few key findings uh, that my team pulled up. Police killed at least 102 unarmed black people in 2015, nearly nearly two each week. Nearly one in three black people killed by police in 2015 were identified as unarmed, although it is heard that the actual number is likely higher due to underreporting. And 37% of unarmed people killed by police were black in 2015, despite black people being only 13% of the U.S. population. Todd, what's going on? 
Oh, Michelle, I you know I wish I knew, and I'm I'm uh, glad and sad that you are, are doing this. I think a, another stat that um, is also chilling is that um, it seems that we're on track, or perhaps have surpassed 2015's numbers regarding overall police shootings, mm-hmm. almost 500. Mm-hmm. So you know the question is exactly what's going on. You know what's happening between uh, law enforcement and um, the folks that they are charged to protect. I think, obviously, with regard to um, the African-American community and communities of color, and uh, I think you know, there's some, uh, some, some bias, frankly, involved. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Some, uh, you know, and not casting aspersions on the majority of, of police officers or law enforcement, but there, there's, something, there's something going on that's unique in our mm-hmm. communities. And I feel that, uh, and we can perhaps talk about this more later, uh, you know, we need to have a, a sense of empowerment, uh, a sense that we're holding folks accountable who are there to protect us. Um, you know, they, we shouldn't be profiled in our communities. We have a right, I think, to uh, demand um, uh, good, effective law enforcement, uh, but not to be uh, gunned down and shot mm-hmm. um, uh, simply for uh, for living in our communities. Um, I think that uh, uh, accountability for me is is the key piece here. And so, Pete, you do a lot of work both organizing on college chapters and local grassroots communities um, and then also trying to articulate a policy vision. But you're on the ground with a lot of young people. Um, I think Million Hoodies is a millennial shaped. And I think you guys came out of um, the Trayvon Martin incident. Why don't you tell people who may not be familiar what Million Hoodies is um, and kind of how you are dealing with the kind of latest tragedies that we're that we're all seeing and experiencing right now. Sure. Uh, so thanks for thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, I mean, what Million Hoodies is is an organization to end the marginalization, criminalization, and stigmatization of people uh, of color, and we do that by energizing our, our grassroots community base uh, through our chapters, and we have several. Uh, current and developing uh, chapters across colleges and universities here in the U.S. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to empower uh, our membership with the tools, resources, and knowledge that they can use to, on their own terms, make a difference within their own community, how they define it. Because we understand that within the framework of our own organization, uh, each different geographic locale has very unique challenges that only the people in that community, in that space and time, can understand. And they really understand the terms in which these battles need to be fought. So the basis of our organization is to empower people so that we can build roads so that everyone, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion, regardless of their sexual identity, can have access to full democracy. Um, So that's what we do. Uh, What we're doing right now in the midst of these two tragedies, uh, yesterday was a very difficult and emotional day for me, and it was something that I was struggling to cope with. Um, And I I was really trying to find ways to manage that stress and manage that grief. Um, And today, uh, I got a text message in the middle of the night, and I woke up saying that there had been another shooting, and, and frankly, I thought it was a mistake. Um, and so then I started going through my phone. I got on social media because that seems to be the most reliable source of information for things like this. And I started finding out more information about the shooting that happened uh, with Flandro Castile. And I, I was just saddened. And I know our membership was saddened. Um, I think when it when it became time, uh, when we felt that our members were awake, um, we you know we have our group chats, we have our email chains, um, we have text messages, phone numbers. We reached out to one another to just know that we were there 
to love and support each other in this time uh, because there's only so much stress that we can take as we continue to exist. Um, and today I've done a lot of reflecting, and I think that really what hit home for me is uh, the philosophy that Du Bois put forth with the double consciousness of being, of being black in America. Mm-hmm. And here we are um, as black people or people that care about the plight of black people here in the United States experiencing this incredible trauma while at the same time having to create space and avenues so that we can still be productive uh, family members. We can still be productive members of society. We can still go to work and still do duties and tasks unrelated to our blackness that we've been tasked with. Um, And as we pursue our own passions and try to advance our own goals um, within the system that we exist. So what we're doing is we're trying our best to create space that is both safe and healing for our membership. And I think that it just so happened uh, we had some some timing come up that um, hopefully some of our members and folks that in D.C. that uh, might have some free time tonight might be, uh, be able to take advantage of. We actually had an Arts for Change event uh, tonight in Washington, D.C. at Busboys and Poets on 7th and K Street starting at 7 p.m. And That's it's going to awesome. be showcased of some local artists, um, and we're going to have some musical performance as well as uh, some more of the visual arts, such as painting. We're going to have uh, a live presentation tonight um, to That's awesome. get, our, get our message out there and just create a healing space because right now we need to be able to heal emotionally so that we can continue to work towards policy change and we can work towards effective change and organizing change from the space that we can protect our own mental sanity. So, Todd, we're going to get ready to go to a quick break. But when we come back, I really want you to help our listeners kind of situate kind of where we are with like historically where we've been. Um, And also, how do you think the administration is handling and dealing with these issues? Because at the core of it, we need some systemic change to really push forward. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. And now the voice... You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. Um, always great being here with you. 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Um, talking about the really heavy news, um, reeling with the latest incident of two African-American men um, shot by police. I want to bring in Kara from Atlanta, Georgia, who's on the line. Kara, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Hey, how you doing? Hey, thanks so much for calling in. Yeah, I was I was just commenting on um, what we could do in the future to maybe uh, stop or uh, maybe have the police think twice about situations like this because not in all cases a death has to be uh, the the final resort. I feel as though um, maybe if if we started holding them. 
um, more accountable for things like this. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. even um, making an arrest, because usually in situations like this, police officers don't get arrested until we um, until we figure out if they're going to go to trial. And I feel like that's not consistent with what we have for other citizens that, that's right. uh, that do the same thing. You know Kara, what I mean? Yeah, no, Kara, I so appreciate that, that point. And I mean, I think that goes exactly to what you were saying earlier, Todd, about accountability. That's exactly right. I, I think there are two aspects to this, right? So there's... Um, our community's feeling empowered, and I can't blame folks for not feeling empowered. Uh, treating this almost like a, 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 a question or a legacy of, of democracy or a lack thereof, right? I mean, I feel, uh, you know, police are providing a service, much like, um, you know, we expect uh, our school teachers and our school systems to provide uh, excellent um, educational services. We should expect the same from law enforcement. I think the other side to this or the piece of this is that we can't look at police as a component of law enforcement without looking at prosecutors. And there are two aspects to that. That's There's right. the duality of what we consider to be you know, bias, perhaps, in the system where we blame the police. But prosecutors have an enormous amount of discretion as to who they choose to prosecute, uh, how they prosecute, who they decide to divert from the mm-hmm. system. And I think in the context of, of uh, police brutality, um, you know, prosecutors, um, uh, I think uh, everyone would agree, are in a difficult spot. And so one thing we've been promoting, and Michelle has taken the lead on this, is uh, the perhaps having special prosecutors. Uh, and I think in this situation in Louisiana, what was uh, striking and was hopefully useful is um, the jurisdictions realizing they needed some objective investigation and pushing it to the Department of Justice. Not to say that they are absolved of any responsibility, but this notion that we need to have some sort of objective analysis and investigation uh, for things like this, I think is critical. And Pete, yeah. you know, you've done a lot of, and Kara, thank you so much for calling in today. Pete, you've done a lot of work on, on that space, particularly either both with demonstrating or making policy changes in this question of, like Kara has raised, accountability. Yeah, I think accountability is a really key piece here, and I think that that is a key piece being able to restore faith, or at least some resemblance of faith, in in the justice system. Uh, Too often times we see uh, acquittals, we see non-indictment. I mean, we saw in the Freddie Gray case, which we thought, you know, maybe this was going to be the uh, the turning point in these cases, we thought that, you know what, now officers are going to be held accountable because what happened in the pretty great case was unconscionable, but then we're seeing the, the officer that had the most evidence against them get off. And I think that that is a, a really key point here, and I think that is a policy solution that we can have in the short term is taking that power out of the internal prosecutor's hands. Right, because a lot of times the prosecutors work so closely with the local police departments, and if they break that line of communication, they might see uh, a breakdown in internal, uh, I guess, as they might see a trust, um, because they're just doing their job, and they might be willing to prosecute, quote-unquote, one of their own. And if we're going to have somebody be accountable for this, we need to take that out of their hands and give it to someone that is capable of looking at this objectively and fair and looking out for the best interest of the community who's been charged with protection of service. And it's evident that that has not been delivered. You know, one of the things that I find so fascinating in even over the break, we got the breaking news that Senator Bernie Sanders is actually going to endorse uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton on Tuesday in New Hampshire. Um, 
But Hillary Clinton has actually released a statement about Alton Sterling. She has commented about the deaths of of our people in the streets. And you've heard silence from Donald Trump. Um, you are running to be the head of a major party in the United States of America. And a significant portion of the people you aim to represent have heard nothing from you on something that is so impactful in their lives. Todd, how how do you even purport to make this um, in the feelings and the angst and the frustration that so many people are having? How do you make that real? Because I do think that there is a gap between sometimes how our white brothers and sisters and our black brothers and sisters see these issues. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, this notion that uh, that, you know, all of this is happening equally mm-hmm. <laughs> or that it's not befalling certain communities or it's befalling all communities equally is just inaccurate. And I think it's, uh, it's, it is a time for leaders and leadership. Uh, the white house did a statement, uh, to really step up frankly and try to get out ahead of potential, um, concerns in our communities, potential feelings of unfairness of a mm-hmm. process that's not going to deliver, uh, the results that people think are, are right. Um, I, I think also we need to recognize and, and understand there's a history in this country of discrimination, a history of fear of difference. And mm. I think it manifests itself. The other. The other. That's exactly right. It manifests itself in many ways. And we're talking about race in this context. Uh, Michelle Alexander said it uh, in her book, you know, that this is part of a legacy of, of, uh, of, of discrimination that, that, that goes back to slavery. And, you know, we can't help but look at the criminal justice system and see that that must be true, mm-hmm. right? African-Americans, mm-hmm. people of color are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system, disproportionately um, in the system, um, disproportionately or actually uh, for, the, for the same crime, disproportionately punished or prosecuted, yep. uh, whereas white uh, uh, individuals are not. So we know there's something there. Mm-hmm. So given that, we have some responsibility as leaders to uh, step up and make the proper reforms necessary. A lot of that's pending now in the Congress regarding sentencing and reentry mm-hmm. and prison reform. A lot of it's happening in the states. In many ways, they were the leaders. Uh, we have to deal with criminal records and mm-hmm. the barriers associated with that that disproportionately, mm-hmm. again, fall on people of color. Uh, the administration has taken uh, many, many steps in this regard uh, with regard to banning the box for federal employment, uh, doing similar, uh, taking similar actions with regard to housing for folks who return. That's right. um, but also, you know, and this may sound wonkish, we need to understand what the problem the full scope of the problem, and that goes to data collection. Mm-hmm. We don't have good numbers yeah. for yeah. the impact of all this on our communities. And so the you know the administration again is trying to take the lead on that by encouraging jurisdictions to voluntarily compile this information and give it to them in some some useful format. It's voluntary so it's not perfect, but we have jurisdictions that are complying because I believe most jurisdictions want to uh, be transparent, want to get ahead of it and need help and encouragement to uh, to get there. Pete, I can't believe we're almost at the end of the hour. You know, what do you tell the young people uh, that are out here um, seeing this on a daily basis on their timelines, on their Facebook? What do you say to them today? I love you. Mm. <laughs> that's that's all that's all we can say in this moment is that we have to be able to hold one another and we have to be able to comfort one another and let each other know that you know, we, we might not get there in our lifetime, but we're gonna make progress because we're gonna continue this fight and we're gonna continue to work and build momentum from the community level so we don't we end this top down approach that we've been trying to move with. We've been ending this approach with one single leader 
trying to tell uh, an entire demographic, an entire population of people where to go, when to be there, and that we get there together. And we let those that have been most marginalized take the lead, that we let our uh, black women, our black trans folks, that we let those that have been on the fringes, the most marginalized in all of our communities, take the lead because their voices matter, their lives matter. So that's what we need to tell our young people as we organize, as we create policy, as we work towards building a better future. Because, you know, if we're going to talk about our re- Republican nominee who doesn't care about black people, who doesn't well, Pete, care about brown people. I appreciate you care. being here today. Pete Million Hoodies, Todd Cox, Center for American Progress. This is Michelle Jawando, Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks, and we'll be back next week.